Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the Lewis and Kyle show. If you're new here, welcome to the show. We have a lot of fun. We learn from a lot of very smart people. If you're a frequent listener, thank you for coming back. Either way, we're happy to have you here. Today, we have Jack Newald on the podcast. Jack is the founder of Crypto Pragmatist, which does responsible altcoin investment research in the investment grade, institutional grade level. It's very good stuff. Jack, when we recorded this episode, had 45,000 Twitter followers on February 9th when we recorded this episode. Today, April 1st, he has well over 70K. Pretty dramatic stuff when you take a couple of weeks too long to edit the episode. In this conversation, we discuss protocols in the altcoin world, how Jack values them, why he values them, and some upper up and comers he's paying attention to. He discusses growing his Twitter and newsletter business so quickly. About 10 months ago, Jack was under 200 followers. That's crazy. He's over 70,000, like I just said. It's a wide-ranging discussion, also covering you know, Jack's backstory before he got into crypto, uh, what it was like living in Mexico City, and just a whole lot of other things from an interesting person like Jack. Two quick disclaimers for us. Again, any of these episodes with Bitcoin people, altcoin people, investment people are not meant to be taken too seriously as advice. We're just having fun. In this conversation specifically, we're just three dudes in our early 20s having a schmooze. If you trade based on what you hear in this conversation, that's on you, bro. Uh, not our fault. But that's pretty much it for this episode. There's one or two issues with a couple moments with not like perfect audio quality. Still very, very good. Just a small heads up, one or two hiccups. Uh, preferred to warn you about that instead of you thinking something's wrong on your end. That's all for me. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. I'm going to switch to it now. Jack, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Hey, thank you guys. Awesome. Well, Jack, you're doing a lot of interesting stuff in crypto with the Crypto Pragmatist. I want to go back to not the beginning, but the beginning of your crypto journey. So what was your aha moment with crypto? I think like a lot of people kind of so I, I started, the first time I bought crypto, I'll start over, is, was like 2017 when my buddy was like, dude, you got to buy some Bitcoin. Bought some Bitcoin in, you know, December 2017 or something. <laughs> bought the very, very top. And I was like, this is a scam. <laughs> but um, I kind of just held on to the crypto I had. And then I remember in March 2020, I was jobless and I came back to like, I was doing a analysis of all my finances and I came back to crypto and I saw it was, it was not in a good spot, but I kind of got, uh, I kind of got reinvigorated to kind of follow crypto again after that. And I think the aha, the aha moment there was looking at Ethereum and then kind of DeFi summer there and seeing that, you know, this is not just, you know, in 2017, it was just, you know, like, blockchain flying cars you know we're gonna create the internet of gecko of pet geckos or whatever and then it was it turned into this kind of really powerful tool for finance and i come from a traditional finance background and and just being able to kind of juxtapose crypto and decentralized finance against against traditional finance i kind of began to see how powerful it was and how interesting kind of the mechanics within crypto are so the fact that you know, you can actually create different dynamics using the tokens themselves to kind of align incentives in different ways. That was really cool to me. And then just kind of from there started really reading about it and, and doing more serious investing into it and, and just kind of followed my curiosity to, to where I am today. Follow the fun, follow the passion. Yeah, I actually come from a finance and accounting background as well. It's what I'm studying in school. And it's crazy how like in, you know, finance class, 
you're like, okay, well, this is the CDCC and, and they control the clearing for, for this security and this security. And it's all these layers built on top of each other, basically for no reason right. other than that's the way that it, that's the way that it works. And like, we've hacked all these pieces together over time and that's how the financial system operates. And like, that's why we have all right. these things that are good. And then you, you come into crypto and you're like, wait, like they're doing this with memes on the internet for like, for like no reason. And then, you know, the, the incentive creation piece of it that you're talking about, it's just like a playground for incentives, right? It's like, right. here's a, a toolbox and go build whatever you can figure it out. And then the market decides whether or not it's valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And I come back to, you know, I think people talk about decentralization in crypto and like, programmatic monetary policy stuff like that around bitcoin but for me the number i look at is like 20 trillion the u.s i think the no i think the global financial industry is about 20 trillion dollars that's the market cap of you know finance and that cannot that's all kind of middlemen you know that's all intermediaries so then you know like a bottom end for crypto would be 20 trillion dollar market cap because you can just kind of create peer-to-peer -peer networks that do all this stuff not that traditional finance is going to go away, I don't think, but it's an interesting kind of thought experiment. Yeah, I think over time they, they meld together and, and become become one for sure. Right. But so you, you go from, you know, investing a little bit more heavily, kind of getting into the space to starting Crypto Pragmatist. What was that thought process like? Like, how did you get to the point where you want to become a, a talking head in, in altcoins? Yeah, so first of all, I, th I thought that there was definitely a gap in the market there. I think y you mentioned this earlier a little bit where there's not that many long-term thinkers in the space. It's kind of rife with people that are self-interested or trying to to make money in a, in a slightly you know unsavory way, perhaps, to put it lightly. So I thought that kind of writing, I was already writing my own research around cryptocurrencies. It wasn't, I couldn't find good, very good research around these kind of smaller cap cryptos. And I said, um, well, what if I, you know, sold that research and then, then there would be a kind of direct incentive to write about crypto. And then if it wasn't quality writing, if it wasn't valuable, then I would have no business model, right? So I saw the an email newsletter as a way to like align incentives with a founder and and their readers you know so that was the the idea behind the business naval i'm not sure if you guys have seen naval's twitter thread around how to get rich or the the podcast definitely familiar that was it that was a huge inspiration we as well where i kind of realized as always yeah, definitely no i put links I, to that one i will always in, show in episodes that. where like we don't even bring it up sometimes where i'm just like yeah someone might see this <laughs> because i put a link here even if it didn't come up so I, I had already kind of had that idea and I, I read a lot of email newsletters. I like the format and uh, then I listened to that podcast. I was like, I'm wasting my life working for a salary. So I was doing kind of digital marketing at the time. So, you know, media and email newsletter kind of has leverage built into it where it can kind of expand, right? So that was like the, the a business with product market fit that I needed and then the introduction of like digital leverage into my into my thinking and that kind of all came together in last summer and I was like all right let's start an email newsletter and see where it goes yeah I have, I have two comments there real quick first one is that this one's just a dig for fun uh, but there are a lot of long-term thinkers in the space they're just all bitcoiners 
the, <laughs> <laughs> but there's not that many long-term thinkers in the shitcoin space. Uh, but that's just because they haven't been quite satisfied yet. And then a quick shill is we did we do have one episode, if anyone's curious, with a pretty big deep dive on Naval's ideas. We interviewed Eric Jorgensen, who wrote the book about Naval based on Naval's writings. Oh. Uh, that's like in the mid-30s. Right. I can also link that one, if anyone's curious, because that's really, really profound ideas and like one of those things that you know, I think if our podcast was just Kyle and I discussing those ideas for 100 episodes, it would be similarly valuable to us discussing 100 different ideas. It's It's that important. Yeah, that's a kind of interesting point you bring up around the shit coins. And I think, you know, a, a lot of people who were in crypto in like 2017 and never really left. And I guess I own crypto, but I wasn't really thinking about crypto too much in 2018, 2019. You know, they kind of saw the scamminess. Like, I think the space was a lot more scammy back then. And now there are some really unique kind of financial primitives coming about. And I think there's a new generation maybe this year that is is seeing like, if not like the full complete evolution, just the potential of like what what blockchain can do for for decentralized finance. So before we discuss some of those things, you're a pretty uh, staunch defender. I know if that's the right way of describing it, but you defend proof of stake as like a viable thing worth pursuing and like a legitimate economic model uh-huh. for the security of a blockchain and the network being healthy built on top of it. What's like your justification for not being a bear on proof of stake since that's really contentious? Yeah, man, it's fun to talk to some Bitcoiners, huh? Well, so first of all, I think like I was just thinking about this today, man, because I'm I'm writing a newsletter that's going out. Well, I've already finished it, but uh, a new newsletter is going out tonight about regulation around crypto. And, you know, that's a huge obstacle for DeFi, especially because it DeFi is kind of centralized. Right. Mm. So like you have founders, you know, they talk about like the immaculate conception of Bitcoin, right? Like Satoshi Nakamoto. Jack's internet cut out for one or two minutes here. So Kyle just asks me another question. And then Jack comes back and in a few minutes and the podcast goes as normal. Lewis, what's the most common Bitcoin or argument against proof of stake and why proof of stake is inferior in theory to, to proof of work? Yeah, there's a couple. One, it's not guarded by like the limitations of physics and like energy generation. So like that's kind of like a check proof of work has that proof of stake doesn't have. I don't know if that's the strongest argument, but it's a good one. That's, I think, fairly true. The other one is that proof of stake more closely resembles the existing financial architecture uh, in terms of how incentive, like people with more existing resources on day one have a huge advantage over people who don't. And that kind of has centralizing mm-hmm. effects. Those are the two main two main arguments Bitcoiners bring up. But I mean, there are a lot of ways in which proof of stake improves things as well in terms of like the usage of energy of blockchains, the, well, that's the big one, right? That's the one that's touted, I guess, as like it being a a savior. I mean, but the the question is like, what's objectively wrong with energy utilization if it's renewable energy utilization? Yeah. Anyhow, that's just a side point, but Mm -hmm. those are, that's the answer to the initial question as far as I can tell. So Jack, next question, you know, I did say that you are a long-term thinker in in the altcoin space, which is rare. And I do believe that how, how are you actively thinking long-term when all these projects are so new, you know, so much new information is coming out every day. There's the Sifu stuff that makes time go to, you know, shit. It's like, you can't really follow it all. So how do you have your guideposts out in the future when so many things are changing right here? And I don't know if you're frozen or not. I'm just going to riff here. One thought I've been having recently, you know, everyone talks about Bitcoin being like the immaculate conception. 
kind of had this like realization the other day. Uh, he just hopped in. He's probably going to join back in. But, I mean, Bitcoin is also a gradual process of invention, right? Like, we, the more you know about the precursors, right? Like, a proof of work was invented. Like, it's not like... Like, Bitcoin is a, a very novel combination of a lot of things that existed already with a few new additions. But, like, the mm-hmm. attempt to create censorship-resistant digital money, like, that was an idea before. It's like the kind of conceptual right. framework existed. The idea of, like, you know, hash cash, right? Like, using cryptography to create that security. That was a thing. And then, like, to central... Again, like, I think it's it's amazing, but I think people overstate and, like, over-dramatify, like, dramatize the original story of, like, of well, the conception of Bitcoin. Well, I mean, he was Bitcoin. around for a long time, you know? I think... Satoshi I mean, on those forums? Yeah, how long was Satoshi around after he began it? I mean, it was, like, months and months. Oh yeah, but I'm saying even just guiding the, it in the same way that like uh, any of these new age founders have been guiding their protocols. It, it wasn't just he dropped it on the earth and let it run forever. Like no, but also it's not like he just dropped something completely novel on the earth either. Like it was a, a novel combination of a lot of things with a few unique solutions, like the difficulty adjustment. Yeah. But anywho, I was just riffing on the idea of like the immaculate conception of Bitcoin versus it's actually uh-huh. just kind of like when you. I don't, I'm going to say this in the least pretentious way possible. Review the existing literature prior to the time Bitcoin was a thing. Uh, there's like, you know, there's a precursor for a lot of the main ideas, like hash cash, digicash, like all of these things that came before, like the intellectual concept of the goal of creating decentralized peer-to-peer money and like censorship-resistant money and like using cryptography to make some of that secure. Like a lot of that had been attempted. Then there's just like some novel inventions that's like the decentralized timestamp server, like whatever like Bitcoin as a decentralized clock being the unique invention. I don't know. Just like all the more you look into it, the more pieces already existed than you realize that's, that was just me. Like that's just something that unrelated to what you're saying now, just like popped in my head yesterday. Alrighty. Jack's internet fixed itself and he jumps back in here and Kyle asks another question. Thanks for bearing with us with those technical difficulties. Uh (laughs) I think, I think Kyle was asking about, do you want to ask that question again? What was I asking about, Lewis? Something about long-term. Some, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. Yep. The long-term well, thinker just with like, long-term memory. What, what's the strategy for long-term thinking <laughs> in a space that is so rapidly changing? Yeah, it's something I deal with a lot because sometimes you have like a thesis on an investment and you're like, this is going to be good. You know, this is going to be huge. And then three months later, something comes a- along that completely disrupts your thinking or disrupts the like business model of that of that project even i think we see a little bit of like a lindy effect with protocols so the protocols that are are long have been around for a while will probably continue to be around for a while and i think like long-term thinking as well in crypto is investing with a time frame of like a year Mm. or two years versus you know traditional finance would be like invest for 30 years or something right it's possible that none of this stuff will be around in a couple of years, I think. But like, like look at something like Compound or something that's, that's really widely used and incredibly popular lending market on Ethereum. Like, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. There are definitely some protocols out there that, that are going to, I, I have some pretty high confidence that they're going to be around. And then... If not, I think the other the other side of that is you invest in a in an index of projects that you think are going to be long lived, and if they're not all long lived, 
and some of them go to zero, then hopefully some of your, your portfolio makes up for that, right? Because, you know, if one thing goes 100x, then you can have, if you have 10 companies, one thing goes 100x, nine of them go to zero, then that's a 10x on your portfolio. It's so kind of then, a power law you know, thing, like, like VC investing. And I, I heard you talk about that right. in that podcast and how you want to do startup investing in the future, which I think we'll probably get into. But <clears throat> what do you think? So what you're talking about is sort of like theme investing. Like if you want to invest, you know, perpetual or not perpetuals, but like, like derivatives, problem right? Oriented. It's like you got like DYDX, you have all of these different uh, certain like protocols that you can bet on, right? So what do you think are the future themes that we're going to see begin to pop up and be important uh, in 2022 and 2023? Like, you know, we had DeFi summer and NFTs. It's like, what other use mm -hmm. cases do you think that are on the horizon that could be big? I'm bullish on a couple of trends. I think scaling is one. And uh, that's not, I'm not the only person to think that, but you know, these layer two solutions for Ethereum because Ethereum is just expensive, too expensive for kind of everyday people to transact on. Even though these kind of uh, DeFi protocols have product mar market fit and they have, you know, novel use cases, um, then there needs to be a way to kind of make this financially accessible to people. And so scaling, I see that as a, as a huge opportunity. Secondly, I see like alternative use cases for NFTs. I know NFTs, I, I'm not a huge fan of NFTs, I'm not gonna lie, in their current form at least. But I know NFTs are gonna see like powerful, are gonna unlock powerful new use cases of cryptocurrencies in the, in the future. Like, you know, kind of these membership models, stuff like that, uh, where it's integrated, like an NFT kind of being your sign-in code, right? Your your credential to log in somewhere. Protocols that are like solving, I guess you could you could you could call that kind of NFT tooling or even DAO tooling, where it's a um, new idea, new new products that uh, NFTs are unlocking. And then the third thing I would say is like centralized DeFi. I saw a protocol, or not a protocol, I saw a, comp a company called, I forget what it's called, but they were using UST, it was like deposit USD and they deposited it into uh, UST, which is uh, a stablecoin, a $1 stablecoin by Terra Luna, and then they deposit that stablecoin in a, in a project called Anchor Protocol, which hypothetically yields 20% you know, risk-free, the risk being the, the risk that the stablecoin depegs. And they're doing that completely integrated with like, you know, conventional banking. So so you don't have to connect to the blockchain at any point to take advantage of, of like the, def the yields mm -hmm. available in DeFi. So I think the integration with some of those protections or like DeFi accounts being insured through centralized intermediaries, like some of the more... Uh, like non-blockchain-based businesses that are operating on on the blockchain, on Ethereum, and allowing, exposing kind of normal people to um, to DeFi use cases. I, I'm really bullish on that. I think that's a good point. Like, especially the, the last one about making the benefits of crypto, broadly speaking, available to non-crypto natives. Just like deposit in your centralized savings account, receive yield, and like, in the status quo, we don't know how our savings accounts receive yield. Like very few people understand what the bank does with the money that makes them able to give you more money and banks just will recruit, right. you know, an additional tool for the people who choose to follow that model. And then of course, like the scaling and NFT use cases, what I always tell people about NFT use cases is like, you know, what's the acronym stand for? 
Like it does not say art. There's no like no no. That's just like one idea people have had that's made it popular. But this is something that right. you know really clicked for me on one of the Tim Ferriss episodes with Chris Dixon, where he's just like, it's just a primitive. It's just like a website. It is a. It's also like much easier for people to grasp like when they understand programming in general and they understand like the abstraction of what a primitive means. It's like NFTs are just a primitive mm-hmm. for a type of asset creation, and like all of the other use cases have just been like a lot of people have been building just it's not gone any attention because it's not had the money yet. Right. Plus I think there's this kind of annoying tendency of in crypto where like the mainstream follows the the biggest pump, you know? So like Shiba Inu like makes the front page of Wall Street Journal or whatever when really it's it's relatively meaningless compared to kind of these other things that are like real real meaningful things happening that that are like real new financial it's real it's real new groundbreaking stuff right and it gets overlooked a lot of times so so but at some point it's gonna like there's gonna be the financial incentive to look at that and once that happens it'll cross over to the mainstream which might be an opportunity as well as kind of an an investment yeah that's something we've talked about in a recent podcast with josh rosenthal is kind of the importance of the cryptographic information layer and like the cryptographic news media type like basically the full stack of distribution because a lot of that is just come like that problem right. of the hype and the, the money determining what gets the eyeballs right that might just be like core to human psychology but it's certainly amplified by existing news media incentive models of just like amplifying the most egregious story not egregious just like the most it's the one with the best hook right and if crypto might pr- create some better models for disseminating like you know useful content not just like alluring content right absolutely and uh while it's still a game of of attention there's definitely better kind of long-term revenue models around creating like less sensational content if that makes sense which is kind of what you do yeah i hope so although it's still sometimes i'm like damn this is clickbait (laughs) but i guess you have to i guess you have to do that and and that's kind of part of like the 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 ante you pay to like to get some meaningful yeah. you know valuable content or valuable kind of concept across is you have to you know use a like a thread emoji and like a, a down yeah, pointing uh, finger emoji to that's uh, russell brunson to saying from click funnels you know sell people what they want but fulfill what they need so it's like just use what you got to do to get their attention but then like actually the put the nutrients in, in, the, in the product that's not in the marketing Jack, what are your top three protocols slash coins, tokens, other than Bitcoin and ETH? As of today. Time stands, February 9th. Like, what is in, no, no, my, no, not, not, well, in my portfolio right now? I don't now. know how to ask that question without asking what's in your portfolio, because I guess it's like, that's the same <laughs> question. But, like, what are you most excited about? Like, what... what um, and also, yeah, sure, if you're willing to tell <laughs> what us. What are you most excited about portfolio? from a personal yeah. financial <laughs> upside perspective and not no other perspective either? Uh, <laughs> see like am i am i being transparent or am i showing my what's the difference (laughs) no um exactly no uh uh, well one thing i'm right now i'm not sure if this will be my in long-term investment in this space but i'm really excited about the decentralized perpetual space because like that's one of the biggest markets in, in crypto is these 
perpetual contracts that are, you know, basically f futures contracts on different cryptocurrencies that are getting traded back and forth. And I think there's a huge market for decentralized exchanges trading these perpetual protocols. DYDX is what I hold right now, but there are some others that I'm, I'm interested in, like GMX. There's one called GMS that I just found out today that's very, very small. And um, there's another called Perpetual Alpha Protocol. Leaks. I haven't decided. Yeah, so I haven't decided exactly what will be my, my long-term mm -hmm. hold or if I'll do kind of an index of those. But I'm excited about that space because it's finally... It's finally kind of a, a problem that's been. Well, let's dive into that a little bit. Um, so, so uh, like, perpetual is sure. a futures contract that never ends, right? Or it doesn't have an expiration date. Why is that important right. for crypto? Um, or why is that a valuable technology for for crypto users to you know have access to? I I don't know actually. This is a that's an interesting question that I don't actually know why perpetuals are much more popular in crypto than in traditional finance markets maybe they're just not allowed I guess another in, like, version the of the US? question is like I why would know. i want to buy one like in what circumstance should I, like if i have a thesis what thesis would make me want to buy a perpetual i mean it's just a it's just a way to expose yourself to crypto with leverage mm -hmm. basically you know so you're not buying spot bitcoin you're buying a bitcoin perpetual and it trades at almost an identical price and then you pay if depending on whether the market is bullish or uh, bearish, you pay you pay or receive funding to hold that contract, and that's kind of how it stays pegged to the to the asset price without needing to settle. But I think the main use case is just people trading on leverage and um, you know trading against collateral instead of instead of needing to hold dollars and because you can like for example for DYDX you can put in ETH or you can put in wrapped Bitcoin and then you can. Be ex maintain that exposure to that crypto asset while using it as collateral to kind of trade as well around these assets. So um, I think that's the, the main use case is just unlocking leverage. I'm not super educated on the financial rails of that. So I might be wrong, but or I, I don't think I'm wrong. There might be other reasons, but I think that's the main use, use case is being able to unlock kind of leverage around it. But yeah, so obviously there's a big... There's potentially a demand for that in a decentralized way, in a non-KYC way. And it hasn't. I think the biggest protocol is like the, is it might be DYDX, which is, you know, the 135th biggest crypto by market cap. So there's obviously still a lot of space when Uniswap is the 14th biggest or something. Especially since derivatives do more volume than spot in centralized exchanges. Not just a little bit more, a lot more. Uh, <laughs> like a shit yeah. ton more. If you, yeah, it's it's. If you look insane. at um, it's on like visual capitalists, and it's like visualizing the world's money, and it's like has gold and real estate, and then derivatives contracts at the bottom, and you just like keep scrolling, keep scrolling, keep scrolling, because it's got like one block represents you know a billion dollars or something like that, so it's uh -huh. just r ridiculous. Yeah, I might be wrong, but I think the derivative global derivatives market is like one quadrillion dollars. Obviously, that's not like dollars, you know, mm. trading hands, but it's it's the total underlying value, value of right. the entire. Yeah, right. Mm. Exactly. It's damn crash course over here. So I got a question. Speaking of the damn crash course in a good way, uh, I've heard you mention on another podcast that a lot of your alpha just comes from being one of the first people to take the time to actually understand things. What is your kind of process for 
actually taking the time to understand things. Is this one of those things where there's there's no shortcuts and you're just the one dude out of a thousand willing to read a white paper and hop on a call, or is or is there something more than that? I think I think since that's a really good question. Like on some level, I, I first of all, I don't think I'm the person with the best alpha out there. I think there are people who are plugged into better networks that can get kind of quicker ideas, but. Twitter is a huge tool. There's so much alpha on Twitter, especially from like smaller accounts. Like I, I'll get DMs from people who'll be like, "Hey, you should check this out," and then in three days at three X's, and I'm like, "What? Like, how did you know that? And why did you tell me?" <laughs> um, but I, I think, I think it's true that like just being willing to research and taking the time to research gives you a huge edge, especially when so many people in crypto are, are just looking for short-term gains and they. And it feels like such a reflexive sentiment game that they're just kind of like seeing what sticks. They're buying whatever asset that they hear about or that their friend tells them about and, and seeing if it sticks. That if you can do kind of more of an in-depth fundamental analysis or understand what's unique about a protocol, then there really is legitimate, like a legitimate edge mm-hmm. to be gained there. Um, and then I think kind of cultivating a community, you know, cultivating other smart people that you talk to on Twitter, Discord, tele- their Telegram groups. And I'm not saying like paid Telegram groups, but just creating, you know, like-minded thinkers that that can kind of poke and prod and and poke holes in your thesis and and stuff like that. I think that's really powerful as well. Alpha comes from friends for sure. You mentioned fundamental research into these protocols, and you know. I think a lot of people would say that that's really difficult to do. What is your process for, you know, fundamentally analyzing a new protocol from from sort of like A to Z? Right. So uh, let's go back to DYDX because I think this is an interesting okay. an interesting like case study. So DYDX is just a decentralized exchange. It's a, it's like a you know FTX, right? It only trades derivatives. And it uh, last year it did over a hundred million dollars in trading fees, so there's no reason we can't value that like a like we would value a company, right? And look at like you know a PE multiple or a, you know look at how much those earnings cost them. And then as it becomes decentralized, you know like stuff like how much are they emitting for for the for liquidity to to make sure that their tokens liquid and and you know how do they pay for the kind of development of the protocol because there's some questions around that but you know right now currently DYDX is trading at like a a PE of 5 or something where it's like worth maybe a little bit a little bit more now but that seems to me like a fundamental under undervaluation compared to compared to a lot of like finance stocks you know crypto and stocks are obviously valued in very different ways but there's definitely ways we can kind of like extrapolate cash flow modeling into into crypto. And obviously you need to make some different assumptions and and you need to look at other cryptos and and figure out kind of what's undervalued um or overvalued. But there's definitely ways you can use kind of conventional modeling to to look at fundamental value of a protocol. I think I think that's that's a great answer, Kyle. I'm good to transfer into a couple other questions. If we want to have some quicker crypto questions at the end, we can bring them back up. But unless you had any quick crypto questions, I'm gonna switch gears here. Go for it, Lewis. Seeing seeing you shake your head there, I know you always got more questions. But your Twitter's grown very very quickly, from what I can tell. 
joined in May of 21. Actually, May of 20. You started your newsletter May of 21. Anyhow, you're at like 45K followers. That's quite a bit in my in my opinion. You mentioned earlier that you're a fan of Dickie Bush. You've learned a lot from him. Just tell us a little bit about at what point you said, okay, I'm going to grow Twitter, and then what your approach to doing that has been and some learnings. Right. So that kind of goes back to the Naval thing where it's about leverage. And I started an email newsletter because I didn't want to be censored, right? I didn't want to be beholden to an algorithm like you are in social media. And then, so I, I was posting my content twi- on Twitter at the beginning, Reddit, Medium, LinkedIn, a couple of other places. And then Twitter started like growing and growing and growing. And then I put more, when it grew a little bit, then I put more and more effort into Twitter. And now it's like, I think about 75% of new subscribers to the email list come through Twitter. And in the last couple of weeks, I've actually gotten a couple of threads censored. I don't know if it's, if censoring is the right word, if it's just like a, a bug or if it's just crypto thinks, or crypto, Twitter thinks I'm like posting as a bot or something. I don't know what the issue is there. But uh, there's problems there. But the truth is that while um, algorithmic growth, well, an algorithm is, it's diff- I don't, you don't want to be beholden to an algorithm, right? But in the same way, an algorithm can really benefit you. So if you can figure out what Twitter is looking for from content or what people are looking for and will amplify on Twitter, then there's a huge opportunity there. So I didn't, I never loved Twitter but it ended up being like this huge tool for my business. And I think I cracked the code a little bit. But Twitter loves um, you. And and I don't love Twitter, <laughs> but Twitter loves me. For <laughs> those listening, Jack gained 25,790 followers in the last 30 days, which is insane. Yeah, and I, I actually had, I joined in that, that Twitter account I created in May 2020, but I think I had under 100 followers until July 2021 so that's really been six or seven months of growth is that 40 do the math on the amount of followers per day on average i can't pause and do those numbers because i'm i'm in real time but you can do that because you're you're listening to this asynchronously <laughs> but it's a lot per day so what are your plans with this new following that you have are you going to continue and for crypto pragmatists as a whole you know, uh, what, what's the future of the brand look like for you? And, you know, I know you mentioned startup investing, sort of like, what does it all look like in a like year Like a Packy McCormick model? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I don't, I'm not 100% sure because I feel like right now I'm kind of staring down two different paths. And one is like build out and a service and, and raise some money and, and, create like a research platform like Masari or Delphi Digital are a couple of examples or just have this beautiful lifestyle business that enables me to to research what I'm curious about and 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 write about whatever I feel like every day and make money off of that so That's I don't a tough call. know entirely <laughs> cuz I really I really like my life now but I think there's like a huge opportunity I've heard in the past and then take and then give them a give them upside for the other for stuff the, for the stuff you don't want to do the, but you have the opportunity to do because of your reach but you take the time on getting the right, right person yeah yeah absolutely but i'm pretty lazy <laughs> is the thing fair that's the point of an operator <laughs> no. to set some terms um, have them like send you a weekly report just to like um put the ball in their court 
That's my idea. I've heard in the past Unsolicited. Though, that Masari, <laughs> Masari does not make that much money as a, as a company. I'm sure like they're all very wealthy in wow. that they trade crypto and have been in the space for a long time. I don't know where I heard that from. I was really more asking you if you knew if that was true or not. Yeah, the other day no, you told I've me about a book that, that you invented in your know. sleep. You're like, do you read that yet? And I'm like, that was just your dream, bro. <laughs> so this could yeah. have been the same night. It definitely could have been made up. Uh, sorry, Ryan Selkis, if you're listening, you're probably not, but I, I just... <laughs> have fun staying poor, Ryan Selkis. I think Selkis. he's doing all right. Yeah, that guy's definitely doing all right, for sure. When I was reading their 2022 thesis or whatever, there was a section of it that was talking about the individual analyst gains. And I think there was only one analyst that didn't have at least one comma in one of their, like holdings you know what i mean it's like twenty six thousand percent gained a thousand percent oh like they had, they had at least, least one percent. trade yeah. that was a thousand percent which is just the alpha there is crazy yeah no that's insane yeah i know i know like the investing like and it's already happened to me a little bit once you uh get a little bit of of traction or a little bit of a following then founders start to reach out to you so like Ryan Selka says crazy deal flow is what I'm trying to say. Right. And I know Delphi, part of Delphi's di- Delphi Digital's model is actually investing. Yeah, I think they have their own, their own fund that they run as well. Right. Everyone in crypto has their own fund. Just some people advertise it more broadly than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just a, that's, that's a secret fact. It's not even a secret fact. I'm going to pick one of these questions right. from from Twitter. I, I threw out a little poll and get, I, I got some of that sweet uh, engagement from your following, which I was grateful for. Um, <laughs> let me see here. Iron Bank. What, what, what is Iron Bank? Oh, so there's this new project called... Um, Iron Bank. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I was actually going a little different, different direction. Okay, so um, there's this founder called Andre uh-huh. Kronje. I don't know how to say his name, actually. He's South African, and he started the, the product project that brought him to mainstream attention is called urine finance which allows people to gain yield on assets basically on crypto assets and he is launching a new project called solidly swap and it's a new type of decentralized uh, exchange basically and the way he's distributing that project is he's actually giving it to protocols so i was trying to do some math around who is getting the most which protocol is getting the most of this like a business it's like a business to business model that they're running well I, I think the idea is he's giving it out P2P. to these protocols oh, to protocol. distribute to their users protocol to protocol. right but it, it is is it is kind of speculated that like some of these protocols will mm-hmm. just hold on to it but we'll see how it plays out anyway so I was trying to figure out who if I wanted exposure to this, to this asset that this exchange is kind of gifting out, who would, where should I put my money? And Iron Bank was like the, the best deal for the money. So that's why I was tweeting about it the it's other like day. for people who okay. try to acquire Bitcoin through buying like a micro strategy. That would, that would be a phenomenal, like if micro strategy started trading at like, you know, because you can't purchase the asset directly if it started trading at the equivalent right if it started trading at the equivalent of like a dollar per bitcoin that would be what iron bank is to this other protocol wow i was like that's uh (laughs) i gotta i gotta hop off this pod real quick i gotta fetch my credit card (laughs) well that 
the question here is like we don't know how these things are gonna, how the protocols are going to distribute. Yeah. So that's and really the question the is why would solidly prove valuable as well? Uh, uh, trading okay. fees. Trading. Well, you know, and I think that people will be a lot more amped up to to join anything that Andre touches if for last week or or two weeks ago some drama hadn't occurred with his business partner Daniele. And right. so why don't we just spend a couple minutes talking about about what unfolded with Sifu and Daniele and yeah. Insanity. And you can why explain you... it to someone who has no idea what's going on because I Yeah, ELL5 or explain like Lewis is 5 because he Cuz I am 5 okay. on this one. If it's not Bitcoin, you know, just kidding. Okay. But still, I I don't know what happened. Okay. ELI5 is Daniele Sesta is an Italian dev who created like three unicorns. And one of them was basically uh, modeled as like a venture fund for crypto. Like, an, you know, you, you invest in this and, it's, and it kind of goes to this war chest, this treasury, and they're going to invest it. What happened was it turned out that the guy who was on the multi-sig wallet for this protocol turned out, I forget his name, Michael something. Or he has like a bunch of pseudonyms as well, but his name on Twitter was Sifu. And it turns out that he was this guy that prob- most likely stole about $100 million in crypto from this Canadian exchange called Quadriga, mm-hmm. I think. And then obviously if this guy's controlling your treasury, no one wants to be part of it. So the the protocol like tanked, including to the point where it was trading at below like net asset value by a significant amount. So like the token was worth less than the treasury. That's the story. And yeah, I don't know what he's up to. I think he's still on Twitter. Yeah, Sifu is. Defending himself. Yeah, and, and I think that the, <laughs> and this was kind of leading me to a larger question. Like Daniele knew for a little bit, he knew for like a month or something who Sifu was and that there was, you know, this fraudster that had access to the multisig. But the question sort of leads to like regulation and how regulators are going to use these individual like uh, pieces of information to attack the space when the time comes. And like these bad actors, when they're allowed to run like this, can do, you know, exponentially more damage to the space as a whole than just taking funds because like this just emboldens sort of like the bear argument or the nancy pelosi's argument as to why you know this needs to be regulated to hell like we need as much you know investor protection laws as possible blah 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 which could potentially hinder the space from growing or accelerating in the ways that it would without it and so how do you think that, you know, what do you think about that? And also, how do we protect ourselves against this sort of FUD? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it's not a FUD, you know, maybe it's like real. It's weird because you, I don't think you should, I don't think it's fair to say, like, do your own research in this case, because what research were mm-hmm. you going to do? Like, if you're willing to an, invest in an anonymous founder, then you have to, then he could be anyone, right? Like he's anonymous. So I think one answer to this is like doxed founders potentially, but then there are a whole host of problems in that. And then, you know, risks to those founders from governments and, you know, people with guns. I, I think though, I tweeted about this a little and it, it was, I was talking about how, you know, there's an idea of like a, of a protocol, like code deployed to Ethereum, for example, 
which just kind of does its job and it's auditable and it's open, you know, it's, it's transparent, it's open source. So anyone can kind of see like what it does and it, and it performs a task. And I think that's kind of like the platonic ideal of a cryptocurrency protocol where this was basically just like some type of fund facilitated by blockchain, which was ultimately run by human beings. Mm. And I don't think many DeFi protocols are at the point where they're just like code kind of operating autonomously. But I think that that would be the idea to get to a place where those protocols are just kind of doing their thing. And then there's no room mm. for bad actors because we know that they're kind of doing their job. That's a solution. I'm not... The regulation question is a difficult one. My gut is my gut says that any regulation will just push stuff overseas. Yeah. It's kind of a black so, box question. I agree. It's sort of like you know talking about nothing until you have a specific regulation to talk about. I just think that it's it's bad because it's ammo for them. Is sort of what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely problematic in that way. Yeah. I think. I think. But there's man. There's a lot of history and like. I think 1.3 billion in crypto was exploited in 2021, so it's not the it's not the first time something yeah, like this. Yeah, for happened. sure. Yeah, this is for no sure. worse than any other fud. That's like, if it's not the worst fud yet, then it's like immediately dismissed in my mind. Yeah, and kind of people have yeah, already forgotten about it. about it. That kind of stuff that doesn't register. It's an interesting story for sure. I. Can- I'm surprised you didn't hear about that. I really am. I didn't want to hear about it. Lewis <laughs> is very purposefully unplugged, but uh, I wish I'd like to be more unplugged. But we've been on some non-crypto it, substacks lately. We'll just we'll just it put it. I didn't that. travel to the Bitcoin Maxi side of Twitter. The the carnivore Aurelius Bitcoin maximalist. Yeah, there, there was the story didn't have enough meat. Yeah, or juice. <laughs> So are you are you following the a little Bitfinex bit. hack? A little bit. Yeah, we definitely just to tell my dad, to just to like be like, hey, you're gonna, I was like, you're gonna, that? I was like, dad, you're gonna hear about this tomorrow, and here's why, here's the the perspective is gonna be spun as, and here's what actually happened. He's like, for sure. And then this morning he showed me the paper newspaper. He's like, pretty good job. He's like, you know, it's like, are we winning, son? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, it, it, I'm just in shock that somebody who can both steal $4 billion and create such horrible, like music content, like is, is like in the same <laughs> body. Like what in the hell? Rosal Khan. Look like the crocodile of wall street, you know, like multi-talented. <laughs> no, I don't think they stole it. I don't oh, think really? They stole it. I, there's no, I my so I wrote a thread on this. Well, we probably should yes, have read yeah. it in preparation for this, um, but we didn't. So <laughs> I honestly like I'm surprised you didn't see it because it's the best thread, best performing thread I've ever. I written. thought it was second. Not to best. be pretentious. Not to be pretentious. I have a, a Chrome extension which shows me it's like all your tweets point. in order. I feel like this one came up in number two. If it isn't, tell me what the most yeah one is. for uh, the listeners. Yeah. It's got 8,500 likes. 2,600 retweets, 453 quote tweets. I mean, this thing just went wild. Uh, I'm Jack. so off, bro. You're right. Second best is your V33. Maybe when I looked. Right. That's the, that's yeah, the Andre Crony yeah. yep. project. And that one is at 2,000 retweets. Maybe when I looked, you got flippins because I was on... I was on the Peloton I mean, last I, night. I, twisted, so, I tweeted this yesterday. I don't so. know. Kind of Peloton research vibes. Red wine. You've had, you've had a big couple days, <laughs> for sure. You know... 
but there's no red so one you, on the pike. So, Jack, anyway. you don't think they stole it, and why? I think, okay, so this guy's a Russian, Russian U.S. citizen. I did a lot of research here, and this is all speculation. So Full like, episode of speculation. No and I really record. don't. As always, liabilities. Yeah. <laughs> Everything I do is speculation on some level. But I think uh, what most people are saying that I read is that he bought the Bitcoin in like an over-the-counter kind of deal with someone, some connection in Russia, the, someone who actually perpetrated the hack. And then they were just going to launder it. So they kind of bought this Bitcoin for pennies on the dollar and then had it and then like mm. needed to launder it. That makes more sense to me for sure. I have so, already put the link to this in my notes for what will become the show notes. Would they, do you think curious. they would have uh, like a legal liability? If Well, I guess you, you just have to prove they knew it was stolen, right? Like, I mean, right. The other one's definitely a crime. Yeah, like, no, both, I both, think... both, both it's not a crime if you buy Bitcoin for pennies on the dollar, right? Like you're just... Well, I guess if, if they're they, knowingly laundering it, I mean, if they, if they knew they had to launder it, Charlie, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like yeah. re- read your Bitcoin history, Charlie Shrem. Yeah. Like, there's there's some stories there. Bitcoin billionaires, that book. Yeah, it's definitely illegal. But like, at what point does it not become illegal? Like, if they sell their Bitcoin, then that Bitcoin, like, that's legal, right? <laughs> I guess it's knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's the knowledge. Or Damn, like that's intent. a weird question. I mean, there's also limits for like AML stuff, like ten thousand dollars if you're like. I would probably you can probably comfortably do like a under the table Bitcoin for fiat trade under like ten thousand dollars, but like, well, there are many places in the world that you can uh, cash out. Well, we're talking about in the U.S. specifically, ten thousand dollars is usually the threshold, and that's where this took place, right? Yeah. Uh, So. Yeah, for some mind blowing reason, I do not know why they. Yeah, that's the craziest part is that they stayed in New York City with four billion dollars of stolen Bitcoin. It's like, maybe go to an island where they'll with no extradition or something. Yeah, mark my. There's more to this story. Mark my words. I'm positive that some bookmarking bookmarked. We'll bookmark it. Um, I've got a fun question. Go for it, Lewis. We're at, we're about at, we're about at an hour, but Again, we're just having so much here. fun. This will be my last question. So, th- you know, we've talked about remote work, remote solopreneur businesses, etc. Is Mexico City a good remote work destination? If so, what are the tips? Ooh, I would live on the beach. <laughs> I mean, I I was based out of Mexico City, but for the last several months, I was I moved to the Oaxacan coast in like mm. the south of Mexico. The internet's pretty horrible, but I since I mostly do writing, it's not too much of an issue. Mexico City for remote work. Mexico City's crazy, but I really like to speak Spanish, and I know I speak Spanish very well. And I lived in Latin America when I was younger, like ten. So I have a Spanish background. I don't know what it would be like if you didn't speak Spanish. But if you do speak Spanish, Mexico City is awesome. It's like the New York City of Latin America. It's huge. It's an enormous city. It's got like 20 million people. There's so much to do. Good food, good like art, music scenes, good professional scene. There's like a burgeoning tech scene that has like, like it's many unicorns. Um, really cool city. But I'm the the future of remote work is bright, man. Spain is a really cool destination. I see. I would love to 
to live in Europe someday. Places like Colombia, Argentina, exciting as me as to me as well. Mexico City's the hot tip. Uh, eat lots of street well, food. It's like Lewis and I are gonna street. need a, a Spanish-speaking tour guide when we go, so we're gonna hit you up. Um, I speak decent Spanish. I'm yeah, like a month out from being fluent. I, swear. I don't know about that. I took I took the AP Spanish Call test me. five years ago. I just need to like find the private keys. It's in my head. Like all the vocabulary, it's just, we'll, it's we'll just, just under lock and key. <laughs> the private we'll keys. Let's go, Jack, for the alpha. Jack, okay. Last question for you: What is something about yourself, completely non-crypto related, couldn't find it on Twitter, that is interesting about you? Ooh, that's a good one. I got ninth place in the collegiate road cycling national championship in. Can you repeat that? <laughs> I got it. <laughs> 20... You and John Wu should become friends. Cycling. You and John Wu. John Wu from Aztec. Do you know who he is? John... He's a good follow on Twitter. Yeah. We had him on the pod. He was the captain of the Yale cycling team in his day. He's he's oh, probably really? like eight years older than you. Yeah. Maybe maybe nine. No, but... yeah, he's a long term thinker in in up. that in this sort of space as well. They, y'all would probably get along. Maybe we can make that happen. Go for a bike ride. It's the new golf. The golf is the new golf. Anyways, Jack. I'm with you on that, Kyle. Biking's great uh, too, though. We really appreciate your time to talk about Crypto Pragmatist and everything going on with you. If our listeners want to learn more about you, want to want to uh, learn about shit coins, want to see your Twitter, where should we send them? Jack Newald on Twitter. J-A-C-K-N-I-E-W-O-L-D. And CryptoPragmatist.com, you can check out. Everything will be linked below in the show notes. Thanks, Jack, for your time. And that wraps up this super fun conversation with Jack Newald, founder of Crypto Pragmatist. Three quick takeaways from me. First of all, is you got to take profits into your long-term bets. This is another one of those takeaways that I can't remember if it came from this conversation or if it came from following Jack more closely after the conversation or the research for Jack before the conversation. But the name of the game is getting more stacked in the asset that you care about. So, you know, Jack might mess around and throw money in these kind of small cap altcoins that are super volatile. But if he makes a win, takes the win, takes the profit, puts it in his long-term bet. So for someone like Jack, that's probably Bitcoin or Ethereum. You know, you make your gamble with this solidly or with this other altcoins brought up in this episode. You take what you win, you put that in something that is your actual store of value, your actual unit of account, whether that's Bitcoin, Ethereum, US dollars, et cetera. Again, not investment advice, but important lesson nonetheless to avoid getting wrecked. Second one is kind of a takeaway. I probably bring it up one of every five episodes that you really start to experience that parabolic growth in your business, right? I've talked about this a couple of times here, how Jack's follower count blew up so crazy, how he went from just someone dude in a job, to some dude who was unemployed, to some dude who has a really nice lifestyle business in under a year because he was positioned around a need and was serving it very well. The businesses, the people that come on this podcast, solving a very, very clear problem, right? Most altcoiners are short-term, give bad advice, don't have sophisticated research, but a lot of people want trades and suggestions. Jack filled that void and grew like crazy because of it. Uh, So that's, again, if you're not growing like crazy, maybe you're not solving a specific problem well enough. So that's my thoughts there. Third takeaway, I might've said three, I'm going to do four, is an inter- this is a super interesting case study of the long-term impact of the work of a couple of guests from this podcast in the past, specifically Dickie Bush and Eric Jorgensen. 
Jack talked about following Dickie Bush, how Dickie's kind of roadmap to Twitter growth really inspired his roadmap to Twitter growth, which of course led to him having the reach to grow his newsletter business so quickly. And then some of the truths from Eric Jorgensen's Almanac of Naval Ravikant uh, resonated with Jack and really helped to make the steps in the right direction. Very, very cool to see, you know, we interviewed Dickie maybe January, February, 2021, Eric in the fall of 2020. And, you know, here we are, April of 2022. And here's a whole person who took those ideas, ran with them and has a really cool business because of it. Uh, final takeaway for me is the alpha that comes from being one of the first to take the time to understand something. This has two parts. First of all, there's so much stuff coming out in this industry and in every industry all the time. And a lot of it's really confusing. And a lot of people just don't act because they're confused. So if you understand something, you can realize a probable outcome sooner than others and potentially profit off that. And the second is that most people are just lazy. So stuff's confusing. It takes time to understand it. And people, when they don't understand something, tend to act in the wrong way or at least not act in the right way. So if you want to find some edge, take the time to understand things that are too hard for the average person to understand on their own. That is all I have to say about this episode with Jack. A couple things for you to do if you enjoyed it. First of all, make sure you're subscribed. You're listening to this episode somewhere. I presume that somewhere, whether it's a podcast player or YouTube or anywhere else, has a subscribe button. If you want to find out about the next episode, as soon as it comes out, I'd hit that button. Uh, Kyle and I are both approachable. We're reachable online at this point. So say hi to us. If you have feedback, thoughts, anything, want to ask us a question, find us. It's not super hard. And uh, we'll chat with you pretty briefly or not briefly if it's interesting. Uh, listen to more of the show. We've got about 100 other episodes. That's exactly how many more episodes we have actually. Check them out. If uh, we take too long to publish the next one, I'm sure you can keep yourself busy with some of the other content until then. And last thought is check out our sponsor, Espresso Displays, thinnest portable monitors in the world. Absolutely essential for having more screen real estate while traveling. There's a link in the show notes if you want to learn more about them. That's all from me. See you all next time. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.